The opinions expressed in the Palace of Glittering Delights are mine and mine alone. No one would be stupid enough to hold them. The things discussed in the Palace of Glittering Delights may lead to spoilers if you have not seen the topic of today's episode. There may also be occasional ranting and swearing. Don't say I didn't warn you. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. Is there anybody out there? Roll up! Roll up! Ladies and gentlemen, children of all ages! Books, comics, sci-fi, TV, and film, live from the Palace of Glittering Delights! And here your host, Dandre Leyland. Let's return to the amazing Spider-Man, specifically the run of comics written by Len Wein, and drawn by Ross Andrew. This is part four, covering issues 167 through 175, plus an annual thrown in there somewhere. Part one was in episode 199, part two in episode 202, and part three in episode 204. Prior to that, I've done episodes covering every issue written by Stan Lee, and the David Michelinie and Todd McFarlane run. Go and listen to them. If you've listened to them, listen to them again. Or tell someone who hasn't listened to them to do so. It would be very much appreciated. Issue 167, Stalked by the Spider Slayer. And issue 168, Murder on the Wing, is a two-part story. A common thread running throughout this episode. This brings to head a subplot that has been bubbling away for a few months. What have J. Jonah Jameson and Marla Madison been up to? The covers, both by John Romita, pretty much tell the tale. Issue 167 has Spider-Man depicted three times. Once in the middle, separating the two halves of the cover. Once on the left, fighting the Spider-Slayer. And once on the right, fighting a mysterious new figure of glowing light. It's busy, but I catch it. Said new figure is named Willow the Wisp on issue 168's cover, which is simply he and Spider-Man fighting. It's better, as it's an action shot, but Willow the Wisp isn't going to be a thing, guys. Issue 168 also has a curious gag on its cover. To the upper right of Spider-Man's leg, written on a billboard, is Slave Driver Hammer, or Ha Ha. A reference to Larry Hammer, the writer of G.I. Joe, or something else. Because I don't think he was writing G.I. Joe at this I don't think he was writing anything at this point. He's still been in high school, I don't know. We open with a splash page of Spider-Man projected upon a wall via a slide projector, and yellow beams being shot at him. We are informed that these are impulse beams by Dr. Marla Madison, and that they work. But exactly how they work and what they do isn't made terribly clear. They don't seem to be damaging the wall the slide is projected upon. So what exactly is the point? Jonah doesn't seem to care. He's operating the impulse beams via a brand new spider slayer, one that cost a small fortune, and he cycles through some more of the deadly machine's arsenal. It possesses web shears that can cut through Spider-Man's webbing, a grapple claw, and incredible strength. As ever, Jonah controls the Slayer via mental projection from a cranial hat. It's a very silly looking hat, but it's a very silly looking Spider Slayer. 
Jonah and Marla seem delighted with the progress, but neither seems to be worrying over much about the legality of what they are doing, which is par for the course with Jonah, his spider slayers, and his faulty and dubious scientific experiments. The Will-O-The-Wisp plot ambles by amiably enough, as Will knocks a truck off the road to steal something that looks like a doctor's bag. We'll ignore why a massive truck from Transcore Trucking would be transporting something so small and instead focus on something we've not seen in a while. A serious discrepancy between art and writing. Now this happened all the time in Stan's days, but the writers and artists have been more simpatico in recent years. However, here we see Will knock the driver out via some kind of hypnosis and then the truck crashes the driver's co-driver being unable to take control. The truck is totaled, with buckled wheels, a shattered windscreen, and we never see the truckers again. What we read, however, is Will tending to the driver's minor cuts and bruises and ensuring that they are okay before he flies away. Comics code interference? Or did the writer and editor not communicate the full intent to the artist? We'll never know. Will is referred to as Marvel's most shocking new superstar on the cover, so somebody expected more of him than we got. Again, he's not going to happen. Interestingly, well, interesting to me anyway, Will gets his name here from one of the truck drivers. With all the talking to himself he does, it's weird how he didn't already have a name, but whatever. Speaking of whatever... Whatever happened to Peter Parker? After all, he's only supposed to be the star of the comic. He and Murray Jane have popped over to see Aunt May and Aunt Anna, but are disturbed to see a ruckus outside May's apartment building. A group of people are leading a picket line to protest the landlord from eliminating rent control from the building, and leading the charge is May Parker. Fair play, Mrs P. Stick it to the man. Peter is well impressed by May's can-do attitude towards social justice, and more than a little surprised. He didn't think that such a thing would be in comics until, oh, at least the mid-2010s. He and MJ head off for a coffee, pondering May's civic-minded attitude, but his spider sense starts the old dance around the noggin, and he tells Murray Jane he'll have to take a rain check. Ever the big spender, Peter deposits MJ on the bus. Peter then changes into Spider-Man to confront the cause of his minor headache. The cause being, of course, the Spider-Slayer. This version, as I've mentioned, is a little bit silly. I mean, they've all been silly, but you know what I mean. This one looks like the robot from Lost in Space, but with legs. It's just as punchable as the last few Spider-Slayers, however, because it once again features Jonah's smirking mug this scene was a tad silly. If whoever is following Peter that causes the Spider-Sense to kick in doesn't know he's Spider-Man, Peter has pretty much led them to that conclusion. If whoever is following Peter does know he's Spider-Man, then Peter's pretty much confirmed it. However, in this case, there is a reason Jonah is following Peter, a reason that has been bubbling along as a subplot for quite a while. It'll bubble further still, but Ween will finally bring this plot to a simmer in issue 170, largely due to the events we are about to witness. 
Spider-Man confronts the Spider-Slayer and after a brief and rather unspectacular fight, Spidey decides he just can't be bothered with any of this and leaves. One could read this as rather bizarre behaviour, but think on it for a moment. Peter knows Jonah isn't really a bad guy, Spider-Slayers and money-funded supervillains to the contrary, and he knows Jonah won't go after anyone else, like, say, the Scorpion might. So he probably thinks he's well out of this ridiculous confrontation. He's not wrong, and Jonah fumes as Spider-Man swings away. As a side note, this is where the British reprint cut off for this week. A forced cliffhanger, necessitated by Marvel UK cutting those strips up to maintain a weekly rather than a monthly schedule. I often wonder what useful information was pushed out of my brain so that I could retain that otherwise incredibly useless knowledge. Elsewhere, Flash, Harry and Liz are exiting the screening of the 1976 Brian De Palma movie, Obsession. The film starred Cliff Robertson, who would ultimately play Uncle Ben in the 2002 Spider-Man movie. So that's a nice piece of unexpected foreshadowing. Flash is complaining that he's got a lot of things bugging him these days, but there are no footnotes to tell us what these are. The trio bump into Harry's red Corvette-driving psychiatrist, Dr. Bart Hamilton, who comes across as a bit of a smug and sleazy jerk to me, but maybe that's because I know what's coming. Spider-Man makes an unscheduled stop by Robbie Robertson's house to ask if Jonah's been acting weird. Well, weirder. Robbie tells Spider-Man about a strange envelope Jonah has been seen cackling over. But Robbie is more concerned that Spider-Man feels he can just drop by his house unannounced. Robbie's anger, initially, seemed unfounded, taking on a new urgency, though. Robbie's anger initially seemed unfounded, but it takes on a new urgency when one considers the people Spider-Man associates with. One of those only has to think that Spidey and Robbie are friends, and Robbie could find his life or the life of his family threatened. Spider-Man does come across as a bit of a thoughtless jerk on occasion. Case in point, a little bit of breaking and entering at the bugle where Spider-Man steals the envelope from Jonah's office safe. Outside, the plots collide like two sumo wrestlers as Spider-Man stops Will-O-The-Wisp from doing exactly the same thing he just did. Specifically, steal an envelope from a safe. It's very hypocritical of Spider-Man to take umbrage at this and cause a fight, but he does because this is a comic book nearing the end of the issue. The duo get into a tussle over the envelopes which get switched, leading to misunderstanding piling upon misunderstanding, similar to that episode of Frasier, where a misunderstanding between Frasier and Niles led to comedic hijinks. What do you mean, which one? Typically, the Spider-Slayer shows up, and by typically I mean to say by an incredible stroke of coincidence. The fight that opens issue 168 is largely played for laughs. The Spider-Slayer is mostly incompetent, and Will is dismissed rather quickly, clutching his head in pain and then disappearing in a blaze of light. I'm never really a fan of the Spider-Slayer, feeling turning Jonah into a Spider-Villain was a mistake that diminished him as a character. Like the first appearance in the Lee Ditko stuff, that was fine, folly, misadventure, whatever you want to call it. But if you keep repeating the same mistake, 
the same illegal action in many ways and not be punished for it, not get arrested for it, not even be accused of it, despite, as we will see in this story, everybody knowing that Jonah Jameson is funding the Spider Slayers, I feel it kind of chips away at Jonah as a character, makes him more of a two-dimensional caricature rather than a three-dimensional living, breathing entity that we can relate to in some way. I mean, we do get Andrew's painstakingly accurate rendings of Rockefeller Plaza, and this sells the scene more than anything in the script. Now, I need you to cast your mind back to issue 151, Ween's first as a writer. I mentioned at the top of this episode where you can find the coverage of that if you've never read the issue. Now, as you will recall, Peter dumped the body of his clone into the smokestack, never to be seen again. If you also recall, Peter felt his spider sense tingle, but he couldn't see the reason why. Well, that subplot is brought back here. Peter opens the envelope he has stolen and sees pictures of him dumping the body of Peter Parker because, remember, he was dumb enough to remove the mask. He still has no idea who took the pictures, but whoever it was has sent them to Jonah. Peter breaks out in a cold and clammy sweat. We then learn what was in Will's envelope. He was trying to steal some plans for something or other. We'll call them the MacGuffin plans. This was at the behest of Jonas Harrow. For those that don't recall, Harrow created Hammerhead and Kangaroo. Well, sort of. And he's a low-rent genetic tinker who never really amounted to anything. So he fits right in with this run. He's coercing Will into doing his bidding, which is kill Spider-Man for... I don't know, because we need some drama. At home, Peter is faffing around in his dark room, trying to come up with a way out of the predicament with the photos. We'll see the results of this next issue. Mary Jane drops by. I quite like where MJ and Peter are at the moment. After their little heart-to-heart an issue or two ago, they aren't trying to squeeze each other into a box of girlfriend, boyfriend, or going steady, or whatever. They've eased nicely into a friends-with-benefits situation. And this very much seems like a booty call on MJ's part. What they get up to is left to our imaginations, but it's sometime later that we next drop in on Spider-Man who is once again breaking and entering, but this time to return what he stole the last time. Whether that counteracts his previous felony, I'll let you decide. After placing Jonah's envelope back in the safe, he's idling around Times Square when Will attacks. The fight is again beautifully rendered by Ross Andrew and sums up Spider-Man's reputation as a New Yorker. But this really rather frivolous tale suddenly takes a dark turn. Spider-Man learns that Will was involved in an accident that destroyed the magnetic adhesion of his molecules, whatever the hell that means, and it takes all his focus to keep it together. Rather than kill Spider-Man, Will elects to dissipate into nothingness. This was a rather nothing two-part story. Some of the character interactions are nice. The Aunt May and Robbie Robertson scene show a new side to their characters. And Peter's ever-evolving relationship with Murray Jane is interesting. The Spider Slayer story, though, is old hat and goes nowhere, like a mouse running on a treadmill. Jonas Harrow is likewise a wholly uninteresting character. And his mad-on for Spider-Man seems arbitrary, given that Spider-Man has no clue who he is. And only one of his creations, Hammerhead, even amounted to anything. 
best in show by far is Ross Andrew, whose lifelike and evocative depictions of New York are still joyous to behold. Issue 169 is half of a good issue. After a cover where Jonah finally flashes the photos at Peter in an effort to prove Peter is Spider-Man, a slight exaggeration of the story, Confrontation, the title, opens with Spider-Man bemoaning a hole in his boot that is letting in water. Letting in water. Before assisting in restoring the reputation of New York's finest, who've just had the police paddy wagon stolen from under them. It's an inconsequential bit, but fun. Jonah then bemoans how all the papers are taking the piss out of his failure with the Spider Slayer. Again, if the papers all know he's behind this, given all the property damage, why has he never been arrested? The paper's headlines are even calling him a vigilante. And Jonah's a bit down about being called a vigilante, which is a bit stupid, really, because, you know, he's a vigilante. Instead of worrying about this overmuch, because there are going to be no consequences, Jonah decides to go with plan B. Use the photos he's had for ages to expose Spider-Man. Now, Jonah is a pretty terrible journalist, if we think about it for a moment. Ignoring the crimes he's committed, funding spider slayers and superpowered criminals, he's literally had front-page news photos on his desk for weeks and done nothing with them. He has proof of something, even if he's not sure what it is. The pictures imply that Spider-Man is directly involved in nefarious activities, something Jonah has wanted proof of for ages, and Jonah just sat on them? Actual evidence of what he said all along that Spider-Man is a wrong'un and he's kept it to himself like a politician hoarding expenses. Well, no more. Having spent millions of dollars and being humiliated, he's finally going to act. Jonah heads over to Peter Parker's pad, where Peter, with a Captain Christopher Pike-worthy quiff, has just arrived home as Spider-Man. Donning his regular clothes over his spider suit, remember that, Jonah's appearance startles Peter, and Jonah spends the first few minutes of his visit slagging off Peter's decor and furnishings before launching into his endgame. Now, does Jonah accuse Peter of having a connection to Spider-Man? No, that would be too obvious, I grant you. Does he lay his photos out on the table in a read and weep style and let Peter try to dig his way out of the problem? No, again, that would be like allowing a child who is caught holding the crayons, denying any knowledge of why there are Crayola marks all over the wallpaper. Instead, Jonah attacks Peter looking for the lifelike Mission Impossible-style face mask Spider-Man must presumably be wearing over his mask. So, Jonah fiddles around with Peter's shirt collar, claws at his neck, and never once sees the Spider-Man costume Peter is literally wearing under said shirt. How dumb is he? Convinced Tom Cruise isn't under there, Jonah then lays it all out, slapping the photos on the table. Peter looks at them and pretends he's never seen them before. He's not the best actor in the world, in the same way that Quentin Tarantino is never the best actor in a Quentin Tarantino film, but he's convincing enough. And after pretending to think, always difficult, he pulls out some of his old snaps from his bottom drawer. 
These snaps, laid side by side with Jonah's, show Spider-Man and Peter in almost identical poses, proving beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jonah's photos are faked. Well, I'd still have questions, and fair enough, so does Jonah, who says that the only person who could have faked these photos is the possessor of the original negatives, and that, Peter Parker, would be you. Ha 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 ha! Check, mate. Peter frets, but then he has a moment, and he thinks, and he goes, uh, well, actually, it was probably my mentally ill flatmate who did it when he was trying to, you know, bring me into whatever scheme he had because he was suffering from an emotional breakdown and he became the Green Goblin and maybe he thought it would be funny to pretend that I was Spider-Man or Spider-Man had killed me and dropped me down a smokestack or something. Yeah, that seems like a perfectly reasonable explanation that I just came up with off the top of my head. Again... I would probably still have questions, but investigative journalist J. Jonah Jameson is satisfied by this explanation of events. Okay. Now, for me, this is some 1950s level of Lois Lane ineptitude right here. Peter gets really lucky in that Jonah doesn't wonder why Harry would want to frame Peter for being Spider-Man, or Spider-Man for killing Peter. Why, if this were Harry, the postmark on the letters only a few weeks ago, when Harry was released from the hospital, and not when he actually was the Green Goblin, or indeed what is there to be gained from making it look like Peter is dead when he clearly isn't. We also have to marvel at Peter's ability to fake a photograph in the era before Photoshop. But whatever, Jonah's happy, subplot resolved, we can move on. Well, I say move on, there's still the little matter of who took the pictures in the first place. And to be fair, Peter is still a little bit curious about this. But he decides that's a loose end for another day. Weirdly, Peter's sudden leap of logic here that Harry did it ends up being a whole lot closer to the truth than he's aware. The rest of the issue takes a nosedive. Throughout it, there's a massive fake-out going on, making us think it's the Kingpin. It's not, it's Dr. Faustus. And this is followed up with issue 170, which is a wannabe Mysterio issue, with Spider-Man fighting hallucinations for most of the page count. It turns out Faustus is drugging Spider-Man with his cigarette smoke, which doesn't explain why Faustus's henchmen aren't drugged also, but he then convinces a drug Spider-Man to help him spike the government's antelope flu vaccine. I have no idea what the antelope flu was, nor why Faustus thinks it's such a big deal, but whatever. Apparently Faustus is going to spike the vaccine with a psychogenetic additive that will allow the people who take the vaccine to become susceptible to his hypnotic control. Who'd have thought it? The anti-vaxxers were right. He talks to himself about this so much, Spider-Man shakes off the mental control and fights to stop him. It's all pretty rote. Spider-Man seems to have far too hard a time dealing with Faustus and his goons, especially given that Captain America pretty much mopped the floor with him. And it all gets wrapped up very neatly when Spider-Man finally wins the day and leaves Faustus and his men for the police. As a story, well, this wiles away the time ably, but it's not a high watermark by any means. It's not awful either. It exists, it entertains, and then you move on. 
Only the subplots really possess anything of any interest. Murray Jane helps Liz Allen look for a wedding dress and a man rents May Parker's house. The former is fun for the inadvertent foreshadowing of Murray Jane wondering what Peter would think if he saw her in a wedding dress and the latter for setting up Amazing Spider-Man 200. Also note, the estate agent mentions that May still owns the house, adding yet another wrinkle to that does May Parker sell the house or not continuity debate. In the letters page, Frank Miller, yes, that one, has a letter praising Ross Andrews' layout. The next two issues aren't very good at all. First, we pop over to the man called Nova issue 12, and then back to Amazing Spider-Man issue 171 for the conclusion of this story called The Man Called Photon. Essentially, it's a murder mystery, and a very dumb one at that, solved by the mere fact that the victim had just enough time to arrange a calendar into the order of a clue before dying, instead of, you know, trying to get some help. The Nova issue is mediocre at best, the Spider-Man issue slightly better due to Ross Andrews' layout. Amazing Spider-Man Annual number 11 is likewise pretty dire. It opens without May being arrested at her Grey Panther's demonstration for rent control. Spider-Man witnesses this, but instead of leaping in to stop the police from manhandling an elderly woman, Peter instead dons his street clothes and waits two hours to go and see her, because he doesn't want anyone connecting Spider-Man with Peter Parker. This is an incredibly dickish move. If this were my elderly relative, secret ID be damned, I'd be down there preventing her arrest, and if I were arrested with her, so be it. Even if I had changed clothes, I'd be still downtown ASAP to see her and help out. Peter is often a bit standoffish and thoughtless, but he isn't selfish, so I didn't buy this at all. This is a writer, in this case Bill Mantlo, thinking too much about this and the whole I don't want anyone connecting Peter Parker to Spider-Man of it all, rather than thinking how Peter would handle this emotionally. Because Peter Parker is nothing if not an emotional character. It then, believe it or not, gets worse by resurrecting the hoary old cliche we thought we'd left behind in the 60s, the Spider-Man gets involved in a film plot. It is no better here than it ever was and gets dumber as it goes along. The annual does feature a backup story which is notable for featuring the first professional Marvel art by John Romita Jr. It is not great and Romita Jr. credits Inca Al Milgram with salvaging it. Issue 172 and 173 are a lot better, focusing as they do on the main cast. Issue 172, The Fiend from the Fire, features the first appearance of the Rocket Racer, a villain notable only for his gimmick being a tricked-out skateboard. Rocket Racer is a pretty lame villain, even if the idea of tying villainy into then-current fads is tried and true. That said, it shouldn't really take Spider-Man four pages to stop a villain whose main gimmick is he's on a skateboard. But it does... And one must wonder if Spidey is simply having an off day if Marty McFly is giving him this kind of problem. It is, at least, a fun opening, ably handled once again by MVP Ross Andrew. While Spider-Man is trying to beat Tony Hawk in unarmed combat, Liz is sitting in a car with a boy, and by sitting I mean doing what Marty McFly's mum claimed she would never do. The loved-up couple are preparing for their marriage, a marriage we will never get to see. No. Really, Harry and Liz ultimately get married off-panel. 
Liz is on the late shift, and so she leaves Harry unsatiated and returns home for a few hours' kip. However, a strange man awaits in her apartment. Liz's face does not look like Ross Andrew drew it in this issue, making me suspect, albeit without any proof, that John Romita did some touching up. Harry, meanwhile, has arranged to meet Peter for an evening coffee, whereby he plans to ask Peter to be his best man. Peter agrees, which makes a lot more sense than Peter being Ned Leeds' best man, largely because this comes from character. It's a pretty decent character beat, really, following up on the college days, where, after a rocky start, Peter and Harry were best friends, and in high school, Peter and Liz were classmates. It's not like you're marrying his ex-girlfriend like Ned was. Did Ned not have any other friends? Before Harry and Peter can start planning the stag do, however, Liz walks past. Harry rushes out, but she blanks him and jumps in a taxi. Now, one could question the geography of all of this. Harry dropped Liz off and then drove to meet Peter, implying that this is at least a small drive away, although Peter walked or web-swinged, so we don't really know the location of the diner. However, Liz walks past the window of the diner before jumping in the taxi. So why walk to the diner at all? Why not just hail a cab from her apartment? The obvious answer is that if she did that, Harry wouldn't see her. Peter tries to reassure Harry, but Harry, still quite troubled, isn't having any of it. Peter heads over to the Bugle to see Jonah, and we get another lengthy character-based scene, of a kind we haven't seen in quite some time. Peter and Glory Grant discuss marriage generally, in regards to Harry and Liz, but Glory seems quite into the idea of dating young Mr Parker. I've mentioned before how Glory was always on the periphery, like they were going to do something with her and then didn't, for whatever reason. I think it would have been cool to have MJ and Glory become good friends and integrate Miss Grant better into the friends group. But you know what? Now I'm thinking bringing back the Love Triangle subplot, but involving MJ, Glory and Peter, that may have potential. Hell, having Glory and Peter become an item would have been fun as well. Certainly better than him getting back together with Betty Brandt. Jonah and Peter's scene is a callback to other similar moments between the two, full of light-hearted banter and bickering, some of which is genuinely funny. Jonah is delighted by Peter's picture of Rocket Racer, but becomes even more so when Marla Madsen drops by. Peter is dumbstruck by Jonah the ladies' man, but for me it was quite charming. Robbie tells Peter they've been working together on the new Spider Slayer, and Peter compares them to Adolf Hitler and Eva Braun, which seems... A bit much. Curiously, the letter spells Adolf wrong. Once again, everyone seems to know that Jonah paid for the Spider Slayer, and yet no one, not even that bastion of integrity Robbie Robertson, seemed bothered. Peter receives a phone call from the police. Proving he had vague booking down long before it was a thing, he doesn't tell Glory or Robbie what's going on, that Liz has been arrested, but apparently will rely on Robbie to bail her out. This was another beat that left me scratching my head. Why would Robbie, or the Bugle, bail Liz Allen out of jail? Robbie only knows Liz in passing, and I don't think Jonah knows her at all. Harry would be a much better choice, given that, you know, he's quite wealthy. Liz has been arrested, stealing chemicals from the hospital in which she works, and Spider-Man takes it upon himself to investigate. The trail leads him to Lizzie's half-brother, Mark Raxton, a.k.a. The Molten Man, 
and it's time for the fight portion of our story. It doesn't go Spidey's way because this is a two-part story. The Molten Man gets away with whatever no-name chemicals he was stealing in the first place, and Spider-Man finds himself on the wrong end of the police's Smith & Weston. As we leap into part two, Spidey takes a bullet in the arm as the Molten Man corners a young doctor into helping him to use the chemicals he's stolen to make a formula that can cure him. It backfires, and the Molten Man finds himself in even worse shape, so he threatens to destroy the Fenster Pharmaceutical Lab unless he speaks to Liz. There's a sort of attempt at explaining why Robbie put up the bail, which still doesn't make a great deal of sense, and Spider-Man visits Kurt Connors off-panel to get his bullet wound attended to, and this, along with us not seeing Liz steal the drugs Raxton needs, makes the story seem somehow incomplete. It's like important scenes were left on the cutting room floor. We're also introduced to a new subplot. Peter is about to flunk college for missing too many classes. Peter then gets another convenient plot phone call, this time from Robbie, telling him where Liz has gone and that he's to take photos and Peter heads over there. This panel contains one of the single most unintentionally funny gags in recent Spider-Man history. Peter arrives at the scene. He thinks, this all makes sense. Liz was taking the chemicals for the molten man. He coerced her into committing the crime, but how do I get him to admit it? immediately followed by the molten man saying, Liz, you've come. Then you forgive me for forcing you to rob the hospital. That there isn't an extra panel here of Peter looking directly at the audience is a missed opportunity. Another missed opportunity is the final fight, which is pretty much a rerun of last issue. Ultimately, the molten man blows up for some reason, and Liz, feeling like she brought this upon everyone, blames herself and leaves Harry all alone. The final scenes are poignant, but getting there was bumpy. Still, not a bad couple of issues, and it's fun to see the Molten Man again, even if, as with other certain members of Spider-Man's rogues gallery, there's not really a lot that you can do with him. At this point, he's just seeking a cure. Another two-parter closes tonight's show, and we've had so many two-part stories during Lemween's run, I can't help but think there was some editorial diktat. Issue 174 and 175 see the return of the Punisher and Hitman in a story that sees Hitman hired by a representative of the People's Liberation Front, an anti-capitalist group of terrorists, to kill J. Jonah Jameson, who has been printing less than favourable stories about them. The opening, with the Punisher stumbling upon the PLF, sees him abandon mercy bullets and torture a woman for information. Which is odd, given that this is yet another story that seems to exist to pivot the Punisher from villain to anti-hero. He's also portrayed as extremely superheroic, performing daring Tarzan-like swings from buildings and seemingly having no problem lifting the combined weight of Spider-Man and Jameson. Spider-Man spends most of the issue nursing his bullet-wounded arm, which may lend some explanation for why he's so ineffectual in this story. He struggles against Hitman, someone with burly above-average strength, and even seems to struggle against the average street cop. We learn that Hitman was in Nam with the Punisher, where, as Lieutenant Burt Kenyon, he saved the Punisher's life. We also learn that the PLF are trying to destroy the Statue of Liberty because it's a symbol of people's oppression, or... something. This was really the main problem here. The PLF are a straw man terrorist group with no clear motivations. 
The Statue of Liberty isn't a symbol of people's oppression, it's a mother of exiles. It greets millions of immigrants and it embodies hope and opportunity for those seeking a better life. It exists to stir the desire for freedom. If you're going to destroy a symbol of capitalist oppression, better take Wall Street or the World Trade Center. Although that would probably be very uncomfortable and distasteful when read nowadays. The PLF also seems surprisingly squeamish about death until it serves the plot to not be. They don't kill the guards at the Statue of Liberty, instead using somni gas grenades. But plan to kill Jonah for his articles that have exposed the PLF, implying they don't want people to know about them and what they are about, which seems counterproductive for a terrorist organisation. Yet they're also about to destroy an internationally world-recognised landmark. Wouldn't that get them the negative publicity they are about to kill Jonah for? Their motivations don't really make a lot of sense. Subplot-wise, we only really see Harry unravelling due to Liz leaving, and in a meeting with Dr. Hamilton, Harry and Dr. Hamilton fight, leaving only one man caked in shadow standing, setting up the next lengthy story arc. But we'll get into that next time. As with most of Ween's run, there's not a lot to dig into here. The run was spectacularly unmemorable, with little to recommend it, but little to dismiss either. The stories, hyperbolic and melodramatic as they were, are fun to read, but there's a disjointed nature to it all. Ween will introduce a subplot, and then seemingly forget about it for months before finally returning to it, or he'll move it along at a snail's pace. I do wonder if Chris Clermont was a fan. The subplots, for example, about the man who rents May Parker's house and Peter's graduation won't even be resolved by him. I'll return to this run soon to wrap up Ween's time on the title with the five-part finale, The Return of the Green Goblin. Do you remember your first comic book? Do you remember the first time you held a cover in your hand and you flipped the pages, you read the adventures of these amazing heroes, and you really fell in love with the medium? The first time you bonded a character to a team, to a company, and you knew, yep, I'm in this for life? Well, so do we. So join us on the never-ending reading pile from the Pulp to Pixel Podcast Network, where we proudly don our nostalgia goggles, we dive into our favorite comics, our favorite eras, our favorite characters, our favorite creators, and we just bask in the glory that is being a comic book collector. Come join us and help us chip away at the never-ending reading pile. Okay, let's do the usual and look in the email bag, should we? Our first email tonight from It's Zack Empire. I like to think it's cool that you've got a surname Empire. (laughs) The Zack Empire strikes back. Greetings, Andy. Greetings. I just wanted to write in to comment on something you pointed out in episode 202. In the episode, you remark on the strange timeline during a certain Spider-Man story, saying it doesn't make much sense, since it's clearly night during certain events, meaning that events that take place after must be later on the same night. I wonder if your confusion could be based on living in a different country. You make the comment that because it's dark outside, it must be at least 7.30 at night. You also point out that the comic takes place in March. I'm wondering if it gets dark where you live later in the day than it does here in America. A check on Google shows that March of this year, sunset in New York tended to be around 5.30pm. That would mean that a few hours later, Peter would be eating fried chicken around 8 o'clock. 
I'm not sure if that was the case, but I thought it might be a no prize explanation. Hope you have a great day. I did think about the time zone thing, but it wasn't just that element of the story that made me think that the chronology didn't work out. There's been a long-standing tradition, as I've covered these comics, that the writers and or the artists aren't working out when these things happen. And often, it's in the writing. And it is just an example of if they're used later instead of meanwhile, all of these problems would be ironed out. Like, Stan did that all the time. He'd use meanwhile when something was clearly happening much later or maybe even the next day. And that ultimately means that the chronology of the story doesn't make a lick of sense if you were thinking about it. Ideally, that's what I was thinking of. Now, going dark at 5.30 in the evening doesn't tend to do that here in March. You're normally looking at going dark around 7, 7.30. So that may have played into it. But I still think, as I pointed out in the episode, I think it was the use of the word meanwhile that cocked it all up. And that's happened many, many times before. But yeah, I suppose the time zone thing could have played into it. Thanks for emailing in, though. I didn't, you're right, I didn't pay any attention to what time it goes dark in New York in March. I just assumed that it would go dark at roughly the same time. You know, I suppose there could be discrepancies there. Our final email tonight is from Rob McCarthy, Superman in Space, which almost sounds like... Da, 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 da. Should follow it the John Williams theme. Hey, Andy. Hey, Rob. Am I wrong that the longest time Superman spent in space is when he could not breathe in space? More than likely. I mean, there may be stories going back a bit where he's in space for an extended period of time that I don't know about, but it did seem like he spent a long time in space. And conveniently kept finding Class M planets. But hey, that's the Star Trek thing, isn't it? What's Burns' thing with going into space to be alone? He could have run into Ben Grimm sitting on Battleworld saying, yeah, I can look human on a planet with no humans. Whee! I don't know that this is Burn. I know that the plan... Burn was going to do the gangbuster storyline. They were his plans that the new creative team adapted. I don't know if he'd plotted through long enough for the Superman in space stuff to be John Burns. I could be wrong. I don't know. Don't worry about kryptonite affecting non-powered Kryptonians. They were changed in the Phantom Zone or Crisis or something. If universes die, if people are whacked around other dimensions, maybe the entire electromagnetic spectrum changed. Rather like my idea that the Star Trek cartoon universe has more purple light. Keep up the great work, Rob. Thank you, Rob. Um, yeah, okay. It's a different universe. It affects them, whatever. Like I said in that, it didn't bother me. You know... The thing with, one of the things that, that's really popular at the moment is to bitch and moan about how a new piece of media has destroyed canon, it's ruined canon, when in fact you can just do some little mental gymnastics and make it fit quite easily. So in that story, they told you what that Gold Kryptonite did this to these characters, so you can't just go along with it because they're telling that story. And it's the same, you know, so, so now according to Obi-Wan, Obi-Wan and Darth Vader met twice before Star Wars. Okay, fine. <laughs> if that's what you're telling me as the creator of the story, fine. Don't bother me. You're you're making it up. Because it, it's all made up. None of it's real. So yeah, I can go with that. And like I said, when I was covering it, it didn't bother me that, you know, should gold kryptonite affect them if they're not kryptonite, you know, whatever. Doesn't matter. 
Anyway, thank you, Rob and Zach, for emailing in. Hope you enjoyed it. If you want to email in, heykidscomics at virginmedia.com is the email address. I'll be back real soon with something else. Don't know what. Not started writing it yet. Uh, take care. And I'll be back when I'm ready. <laughs> That's the best way to say it. Take care. And I'll see you all real soon. It's all going to be okay. Mostly. Goodbye.